Welcome to the Third City Christian Church Podcast. This week's message is Hills to Die On, Part 1, Worship. Recorded Sunday, September 11th, 2022. If you have a story about how God is working in your life, please let us know by sending an email to podcast at thirdcityc.org. Now here's Scott with today's message. We're talking about hills to die on, and you, you know what that phrase means. I mean, it actually has a military implication. Uh, Custer's Last Stand, Hamburger Hill, you know, where you have to hold the hill no matter what. And as we've seen over the last eight months, story after story, miracle after miracle, we unpack this, we go forward, we're going to see that the ultimate hill that all of us should take our stand is the one that Jesus is approaching called Golgotha. And in the next nine weeks, we're going to either crown him or kill him on that hill. Every one of us have to decide, what are we going to do with Jesus on that hill? The ultimate hill of decision. Well, in chapter 14, where we find ourselves in Mark, we are in the last days of Jesus' life. For the past several days in Jesus' life at this point, he and his disciples have been spending the night in a little community outside of Jerusalem called Bethany. Every day, every day they'd walk into Jerusalem from Bethany and then all the outstanding things that happened in the latter part of the Gospels happened either in Bethany or in Jerusalem during those last few days of his life on earth. And he, he would go into Jerusalem with thousands upon thousands of pilgrimagers who would go there to celebrate the Passover. So let's pick it up and read a little bit about that. Verse 1 of chapter 14. Now the Passover and the festival of unleavened bread were just a few days away, and the chief priests and the teachers of the law were scheming to arrest Jesus secretly and kill him. But not during the festival, they said, for the people might riot. So these religious politicians have made up their collective minds. We're going to kill him, but not, not now. They need an opportunity. And what uh, we know this because we have the benefit of hindsight, but we know that they were playing right into God's hands all along because God had, had set this up so that the true Lamb of God could take away the sins of the world. The Passover alludes to all of that. By far, it's the most important holiday of the Jewish people. For centuries, the nation of Israel celebrated Passover to mark their rescue from the, from the tyrants Egypt who had enslaved them. And you know the story probably because you've seen several of the movies. So the night that uh, God was going to send the death angel into Egypt, the people who wanted to make sure their firstborn child would survive would put a, a, a splot of, of blood from a lamb without blemish on the doorpost. And then the death angel would pass over that home, and they'd be spared. So it's historically huge for them to celebrate this. Let's read on. Verse 3, <clears throat> while he was in Bethany reclining at a table in the home of Simon the leper, a woman came with an alabaster jar of very expensive perfume made of pure nard. She broke the jar and poured the perfume on his head. So it, it's in Bethany where Jesus had helped this leper Simon and healed him. And so now he's at his home. It was also in Bethany just a few days before, before this where he raised a dead man, his friend Lazarus, out of the grave 
after being dead for four days. And so you got to realize that this is like a really packed situation. This would probably be a courtyard and there would be literally hundreds of people, you know, leaning in to hear from this Jesus who did these things for Simon and Lazarus and many others. Now, the key person in this whole scenario is an unnamed person by Mark. But his colleague, Matthew, actually tells us who she is. Her name is Mary. She is the sister of Lazarus, who Jesus had raised from the dead. So it's an incredible experience. Jesus has in mind what he will be doing in the next two days. And it's, it's right before him. And everyone else is just doing their, their thing. The Pharisees want to kill him. The disciples are still trying to figure out how they're going to win in all this. And there's one disciple in particular who hasn't made up his mind yet, I guess. There is one person who seems to get it in the whole place. It's Mary. And I wonder if she's the one alone at this point, other than Jesus, who knew what was about to come. Let's read on. Verse 4. Some of those present were saying indignantly after she poured that perfume on him, why this waste of perfume? It could have been sold for more than a year's wages and the money given to the poor. And they rebuked her harshly. I want you to note some words in that little verse about their attitude toward Mary. Indignant, waste, rebuke, harsh. They were attacking her. And to be honest, had we been there, we might have been questioning her too. What does Jesus do with it though? Verse 6, leave her alone. Why are you bothering her? She's done a beautiful thing to me. The poor, you will always have with you, and you can help them anytime you want. And I almost think he said that to say, what are you doing for the poor? I mean, what are you really doing for the poor? I'm just guessing on that. But, but you will always have, you will not always have me, he says. She did what she could. To me, now listen, that's the key phrase here. She did what she could. That describes worship at its purest essence when we do what we can do to honor him. When I do what I can do. I don't, I don't have to be concerned about what you can do. And when you can do what you can do, don't be concerned about what I can do. Truly, I tell you, I mean, she poured this perfume out beforehand on my body to prepare for my burial. And wherever the gospel's preached, people are going to talk about this woman. They're going to honor her. They're going to, they're going to remember her. Verse 10, then Judas Iscariot, one of the 12, went to the chief priest to betray Jesus to them. They were delighted to hear this because this was their opportunity. Remember, they said, not now. This is their foot in the door. And they promised to give him money. So he watched for an opportunity to hand him over. This is kind of what I consider to be an Oriole cookie Jesus story. Okay? Like you're familiar with what those are. You probably ate a lot of them last night in nervousness. So the Oriole cookie, like it has the crunchy outside, you know. The, the, and to me, it's like they're just like there because they have to be. Because something has to hold that really good deliciousness in the center there. And I see Mary as like that good, delicious center cookie because her worship is so good. So she's the one who crowns him, and they're the ones who crumble. That's what I'm trying to say. But what does this scenario 
teach me, you, about how we respond to God. How we, the, the term is worship God. Four common responses from, that they show us. There might be others, but these are four that we see from them. Now, please don't lose sight of the fact that all four principles in this story, they claim to worship God, all four of them. The religious leaders, I will just say this, in terms of their physical attributes of worship, they were better than anyone else because they day in, day out were doing religious style things supposedly to honor God. I'm not saying they were the right things, but they at least were doing those things. And then Mary does this thing that's intended to give glory to Jesus and course none of them recognized that reverence the disciples had left everything to follow Jesus and so you'd have to say their lives were on target with with that and they weren't really at this point but they become that way even Judas even Judas thought he was doing the right thing when he betrayed Jesus because he believed that Jesus was not the right one for the nation and so what matters most to, to, to me, at least, is what happens here, in this place, in this time, if you're online with us, with you. What's hap- what really matters is right now, you and me. Where is my, your, our worship? Where do we fit? Where do we line up? So let me ask you four questions, because I think they come right out of the story and right out of the principal people that are part of the story. Here's the first question I have for you. Do you see Jesus as a threat? And you say, well, that's stupid. What do you mean a threat? To the religious leaders, he certainly was. And the the, the three things they were most threatened by with Jesus, and don't fool yourself, you, me, we can be threatened by these things too. He was a threat to their influence because they were very influential people in their day. And they didn't like it when their self-importance was questioned by him or others. And he created all kinds of questions about that. So he threatened their influence. He he threatened their importance. And I will just say self-importance. Because they had power. They had influence. Others followed them. They looked up to them. They, 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 They were lining up behind them. And so when he questioned their authority, their teaching, and their methods... Yeah, it, it was a big deal to them because their importance was being put, pushed aside. And then I think the, the big one here is he threatened their institutions. Their institutions. Because they had ways of doing religion. And it seems like turn after turn, he was questioning their methods, their institutions. So things got really bad between Jesus and them. When he started questioning religious, though, they really turned for the, for the worst. Like, for instance, when... He would do things on the Sabbath, which was their holy day of the week. Things like heal people. And by the way, think about this. Who among them could heal anyone from leprosy or raise anyone from the dead? None of them. And yet they would focus not on what the, the marvelous thing that Jesus did, but rather, oh, he did that on Saturday. That's against our laws, against our traditions. It's crazy. It's crazy because it has to do with influence, importance, institutional control. And I thought about this over the course of preparing this message, and it made me think about how common this is. I mean, it doesn't seem like it would be, but it really is. I've been in church work now for almost 40 years, and 29 here, which has been marvelous for me, but, 
But a lot of my friends are preachers and church leaders in some realm or another. And as I looked in the mirror, as I thought about myself, I thought about you and, and our church and the church in general, I realized that most of the tension points that happen between people in church is when they get upset about their influence, they, their self-importance is challenged, or their pet institutions are being questioned. And any time I take center stage over Jesus in any of those things, that's a real worship issue for me. I take these gatherings, for example, what we do in, in when we come together like this. I, I'm going to be Captain Obvious here. I usually am. I'm just going to blob this out for you, and then you'll go, well, duh. But maybe, in your, at least in your head, you will. Gatherings like this are not supposed to be experiences designed for me or for you. Rather, the purpose of these gatherings is to bring worship to the Lord, to Jesus, to God, in unison with each other, in, in, in compatibility with one another. Everyone has their own idea and favorite things, though, that, of what happens when we gather, like, like the components that we bring into a worship experience. Everyone has their own ideas on what's best. Would you agree with that? Like, you have opinions about that. I do, too. So when I go here, listen to this, I don't like this. I don't like that. I like more of that and less of that. I like less light. I like more light. I think that's too much. Too much entertainment. Too much production. Too many songs like that. I like more silence and reflection. I think it's too quiet here. I like more excitement. I like more emotion. I like it when the young guy preaches. Because I do. I like it when the old guy preaches. When Dan preaches, I love it. <laughs> Who needs a preacher? Why don't we just sing all the time? Who needs songs? Why don't we just have preachers? It's like one of you that think that way, but I'll talk to you later. Thank you. Churches, even whole movements, have split over such nonsense. Like whether or not to use an in, a musical instrument in, in a church service has split movements. Or whether to use this instrument and not that instrument. Or, you know, how we do communion. Or uh, how we manage the church and how it's organized and what people are called and, and how certain people fit in and certain... Look, here's the problem with all of that. I can't find the Bible verse. I just can't find it. It's, all these petty arguments do, do is nothing more than create disharmony and move us off mission to share Jesus with a dying, broken world. That's all they do. And you know what that's called in essence? Sin. It's the tendency for people to want to turn the worship of God to themselves. These religious people, they push back at Jesus. They, they're going to kill him. You know that. Because he was a threat to their triple I power. So the first question that I have to ask myself when I evaluate my own worship of God is, do I see Jesus as a threat to my pride, to my ego, 
You know, the Bible has a lot to say about ego. None of it good. So I want to challenge you with this, okay? And I, look, I recognize that, you know, if I don't look in the mirror on this, I can't say anything to you. I'm, I'm a hypocrite. And I'm trying not to be a hypocrite. So I'm just going to call this something, I'm just going to give it a little word, pigness. Pigness. Don't, don't point at me. You might got some in you. Okay, for instance, I'm going to tell you, just, just be kind of honest with you. It used to be when, when something happened around here, I, I, I knew about it. Like, like, you know, if there was some change made in our church or some leadership movement, or I knew about it. Now, at times... I'm surprised as you are when something happens here. And you might be thinking, well, what kind of senior leader are you if you don't know everything that's happened? I don't know everything's happened. And it used to be like I'd be a little FOMO on that, like, oh, I wish I knew that. And, and I got to say, I still have those, you know, those thoughts. Like, you know, but here's what we can do with this, you know. Like, uh, you can get to this idea where you're not in on everything, and it could be me, you, everybody here. Why didn't I know? When, why wasn't I asked? Who got to decide that? And sometimes that's out of concern, but more often than not, it's out of ego. But I'm discovering it's kind of a beautiful thing to say, that happened? Well, let's look at what happened with it. Were people's lives changed? Was the gospel spoken and preached to people who needed to hear it? Um... Is, is there good things happening? Are people finding hope in Christ because of that? Were there baptisms? Was there life change? But a little secret. Ready for this? Don't tell anybody. Sometimes I FOMO. Sometimes I want to be on the, in, in the room when it happens. Because I can be a selfish pig. And before you say amen... Stop oinking. Wow, he sure is testy tonight. I think he had a rough night. Anyway. I'm discovering it's a beautiful thing to say. No, I really don't know. But man, Jesus was praised in that, in that party that he threw. He was praised. He was glorified. People came to Jesus. It was wonderful. Generosity was shared. It was awesome. I just lost all my notes. Excuse me for a moment. There we are. So here's the thing. When God's moving in this incredible congregation, in this wonderful movement of God, we want to make sure we stay out of the way as much as we can and give all the glory to him. Because what I have found in my church work over the years is that, I'm just going to say it, every one of those times when people were bickering with each other, every one of them, they were struggling, and so was I, with self-importance, loss of influence, and lack of institutional control. And so I just want to say as a church, friends, I'm begging you in this, we don't even want a tiny bit of that kind of yeast in this Third City Loaf. Because we worship God and God alone and we don't worship you, and you don't worship me, and we don't worship each other, and we don't worship this church apart from the power and the headship of Jesus Christ alone. Can I get an amen on that? Amen. 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 So here's another question I have to ask. 
do I see him as invaluable? Because one did there, remember? Mary, who poured this perfume and anointed him for his death, his burial. Now, you may or may not know this. That perfume perfume was worth $60,000 or something like that. I don't know if that's the Amazon price or Dillard's. I can tell you right now, that's way too much. I mean, ladies, you smell great, but that's way too much. My guess is that every one of us, if we'd have been there, would have at some level or another said, what a waste. She just wasted 60 grand on that little worship experience. The difference between Mary and the people there that said that, I think she and she alone knew who he was, the Son of God, and where he was going, and it wasn't pretty. And she was preparing him. Because worship does that. Worship gives what it can. It open, I open up. I pour it out. I stink the place up with whatever it is I can give him. And the difference between her and them, she saw that and she saw him. She did what she could. That is worship of Jesus. It's when I do what I can do. Not what you can do. Not what they can do. I do what I can do to elevate him. That's worship. Now, some of you can sing. You can do that. Some of you can read the Bible and it just opens up to you and it's a very beautiful thing and you're able to speak it. Great. Does it magnify him? Because Paul says if it doesn't, that's only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. (laughs) Do I see him as invaluable? Does my worship follow that? Third question. Do you see him as a leader to be followed? The disciples are not bad guys. They will see it. They don't see it yet. They're developing, but they haven't developed. And they're asking the questions. Why did she waste that money? They, they did then what so many do today. They see him as this solution to their concerns. He's leading them forward to overcome this, this tyrancy called the Roman Empire. And, and they're going to establish a new kingdom with him. And they're going to have power in this kingdom. And they're waiting for him to change their scenario. And I think the reason they were indignant about Mary and what she did, they were ashamed because they saw in her a recognition of Jesus none of them had. And I think we do that. I think sometimes we get ashamed because we compare ourselves to others and we say, yeah, I'm not there, but I'm going to criticize. And that's a bad place to be, friend, because it means you have a short-sighted agenda and you have a path of personal elevation And your happiness is relying on what Jesus does for you rather than what you give him in return. And friend, if you only see Jesus as a guide for a better life, you will ultimately walk away when things don't turn out the way you wanted them to. I was in deep. I turned to Jesus. He saved my marriage. He rescued my job. He saved my family. He he delivered me from from disease or from, or from abuse or from, or from uh, you know, addiction. Uh, but if the only Jesus you can claim is the one who's pushing the good buttons that you perceive in your life, you're going to be sorely disappointed when the buttons aren't going so well. So in my worship of Jesus, is he just a great leader and my personal guru who will make my world a better place? 
or he, is he the God ultimately that who will redeem all of us and give us a hope for eternity? It's a massive, important question. He's going to redeem the heavens and the earth and all humankind. She saw it. They didn't. One more question. Do you see Jesus as a disappointment to be rejected? Because ultimately, Judas was using Jesus. And when his agenda went south on Judas, Judas went north on betrayal. And somewhere along the line, he said, I I want nothing more to do with this guy. I mean, all the things I hoped he'd do for me, they aren't going to happen. It's the bitterness that says, I don't want anything to do with a God who would do that. It's the person who prayed that their loved one was not going to die because the world is going to kill us, by the way, friend. I don't know if you know that. It is going to kill us someday unless Jesus returns. But, But Jesus didn't make it right, and so now they're bitter and they won't go further with God. They just won't accept the fact that life is more than a six to eight decade stint on earth. It's the person who sought God in the devastating marriage, hoping that Jesus' magic, would, the magic dust would come and everything would turn around and the spouse would actually tear up the papers at the last minute and they didn't do that. And so they said, thank you, Jesus, for nothing. It's the Jesus that doesn't give you what you want. And you have to decide, am I going to go on the hill with him anyway? It's a version of Christianity that sticks around as long as I like what's happening to me, to mine, to ours, but runs when Satan kicks me in the face, which he will. And he will laugh. And will I turn? Where do you see yourself? Probably none of us are exclusively any of these. Like, we're like a combo package. We dip in and out, you know, like... I'm tired of God not answering my prayers, giving me what I want. I want others to value what I value when it comes to worship and listen to me. I'm still on board, but I'd like to get something back on all this investment I'm making when I serve here and when I give here. I pray that you can say, I will climb the hill and stand there with him to the very end, to the very end. I see him for who he is, and that means no matter what I give him back, it pales in extravagance to what he's giving me. And I think Mary saw that. I think she poured out that perfume as it was just, like it was the cheap stuff from the counter at Walmart. I think that's what she did. Because she saw the value in the one that she worshiped. You see, that's worship. Lord, as we come in this moment of reflection, communion, the Lord's Supper, something really important happens here. There's many things, really, but there's something that I'm thinking about right now. It's that you are worshiped. Not me, not us, not it. Not that dream that is never going to come to fruition. Not that person who I thought was going to save me in this world. Not that experience that I long for and when I don't get it, 
I feel void. No, it's you. And Lord, we see you. We see you as the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, who poured yourself out, the most extravagant gift of love ever given so that we can have your hope and peace. Thank you, Lord. I do think that, that how we approach worship is just really very individual, and, and God gives us that. Like, like we're all different, and we all respond to different things, and, and we want to give things differently to God. I think that's okay. There's nothing wrong with that. And we bring passion to it. That's good. Like many people, or many, many of you here today, you're just very emotionally driven people anyway, or maybe at least in worship, you have like deep emotions that come out and that's, that's a good thing. Others of you, like you're like, man, just get to the, get to the meat of the word of God. I, you give me that, I'm, that's all I need. But I was thinking about it in context of a story, okay? Let me just say it like this. Let's say there's a mom with twin daughters, she, they're 18, Geraldine and Victoria, now, moms, she was a good student, and, and when she was a student, she played volleyball in college, very talented that way. Has a career, successful. Secretly still loves the Spice Girls. <laughs> Geraldine and Victoria, I'm just going to throw that out. So her two daughters, they're different. They, they, they approach life in different paths. Like So for instance, Geraldine, pretty serious girl, uh, very studious. Uh, very specific about how she does life. She's kind of a neat freak. She loves serving her church with missions projects. Her room's always clean. Her car's always clean. That's Geraldine. Victoria, a little more of a free spirit. Like she loves school, but it's because there's people there to talk to. And uh, she's okay with academics because she has to be, but she's very musical. She's performance prone. She serves with her church. Student worship, that's where she she gives of herself as she works. She worships uh, with the team at church. Her room and her car, they look like wild pit bulls got in looking for a piece of weak old meat, <laughs> which probably could be found underneath the rubble in her room. Okay. Now her mom, their mom, she loves them both without question. She loves spending time with them in their own, you know, special ways. She loves, you know, going to, the, to have a coffee and talk about a good book with her, her, her daughter, Geraldine. And she loves going to concerts with Victoria and celebrating in, in worship with her. And uh, it's, it's all good. And she still tells, by the way, she still has to tell um, um, Victoria that, that there can be salmonella on meat that if it's left in the wrong place for a long time. So she's a mom. She's, she's, a, she's, she's a mom. But again, she loves them so much, and she loves celebrating who they are. I want you to know that God has a, has a specific desire for worship when it comes to our lives and even in these settings. Jesus says we worship in spirit and in truth. In spirit and in truth. And that means that we bring all the emotion that we have to it, and we also bring the idea that truth has to be present. And, you know, mom has shared tears of joy with Geraldine and expressions of service to the poor. And with Victoria, they've shouted at the top of their lungs in praise services that bring honor to Jesus. But God has house rules. 
and his house rules are you worship in spirit and in truth. And that brings unity to the church. It's when we give each other all the grace we need to, to say, I may not do it the way you like to, but I'm going to do it the way he likes me to. I'm going to honor him. I'm going to give my extravagance to him. I'm going to pour that out to him. I'm going to do what I can do. I'm going to give honor and glory to God. I'm going to please him. I'm not going to look to be pleased myself. I'm not going to look to please others because true worship is not, nor has it ever been about you, about me, or about us. It's about the one who poured himself out for us. And $60,000 won't even begin to touch that bill. I promise. Thanks for listening to the Third City Christian Church Podcast. Please join us for one of our worship services at 9, 10, 15, or 11, 30 a.m. in Grand Island and at 10, 15 a.m. at Broken Bow on Facebook Live and at thirdcityc.online.church each Sunday. For more information about Third City Christian Church, send email to podcast at thirdcityc.org, call us at 308-384-5038, or visit us online at thirdcityc.org.